Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies, a fading star and his stunt double look for new purpose in a tinsel town that's going through a few changes. Sam, uh, if you got me covered up in all this, uh, this junk, uh, how's the audience going to know it's me? I hope they don't. Mm. A pooch with a talent for reincarnation finds his way home to his family. And then... It happened. I was a puppy again, and CJ was my new purpose. She was a gigantic baby now. And the 40-year story of a Kiwi band is also the story of modern New Zealand. Last weekend, the film world mourned the loss of the actor, writer, producer and member of one of Hollywood's most prominent families, Peter Fonda. Fifty years ago, he, Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson changed movies forever with the outlaw, hippie, counterculture classic Easy Rider. You know, this used to be a hell of a good country. I can't understand what's going on with it. Man, everybody got chicken, that's what happened. Hey, we can't even get into, like, a second-rate hotel. I mean, a second-rate motel, you dig? Don't they think we're going to cut their throat or something, man? I'm like, they're scared, man. Well, they're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. Amen. All we represent to them, man, is somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. I would have been thinking about Easy Rider anyway this week because it was released during the interregnum between the two halves of Quentin Tarantino's new film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The first section takes place in February 1969 and the second almost exactly 50 years ago in August 1969 when Hollywood and the world was rocked by the Manson family murders of Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring and the rest of the people at 10,050 Cielo Drive in Laurel Canyon. In between, NASA put an astronaut on the moon. Kurt Vonnegut published Slaughterhouse-Five. Captain Beefheart released Trout Mask Replica. And, as I mentioned, Easy Rider premiered at Cannes. I sometimes wish I was around in 1969, and then I remember that I actually was. 
We'll get back to the Manson family in a minute, but I want to finish paying tribute to Peter Fonda, who never quite got his due as a director, but who was enormously influential behind the scenes as Hollywood creativity transitioned away from European World War II émigré directors like Billy Wilder and Fritz Lang to film school graduates like Coppola and Scorsese. And it gives me a chance to recall a line from British film critic Barry Norman, who, when describing the famously chilly relationship that superstar father Henry had with his children Peter and Jane, he called it a case of Fonda making the heart grow absent. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick Stutt double Cliff Booth. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Quentin Tarantino's ninth feature film, as the trailers loudly remind you, and it is his most relaxed. He's indulging something else this time, not the virtuoso screenplay trickery, but a personal nostalgia for old Hollywood and the Los Angeles he himself grew up in. The film centres on a fading star of TV westerns, Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his stunt double gopher, sidekick and paid best buddy Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. Dalton was a star in the 50s on a show called Bounty Law, but he's now reduced to playing Villain of the Week on shows like FBI. He's still earning enough to pay Cliff to drive him around, but he can see where things are headed. When producer Marvin Schwarz, a cameo from Al Pacino, says he can set him up in some spaghetti westerns, Dalton feels like this might be the end of the line. Someone should have told him that by this point Sergio Leone had taken Clint Eastwood, an actor from TV's Rawhide, and turned him into an international star. He's not getting the best advice, our Rick, but he's also not in great shape to take it. Last night we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> oh, the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Crown you Nazi bastards! <laughs> Dalton lives on Cielo Drive. I told you we'd get back there. Right next door, in fact, to Sharon Tate and her husband, the Polish director of Rosemary's Baby, Roman Polanski. Both Rick and Cliff can see that artists like Polanski are the next generation, but they both know that their kind of acting isn't likely to be needed in this new world. There's a lovely moment, in fact, when Brad Pitt as Cliff takes his shirt off while he's on the roof fixing Rick's TV aerial, uh, but he gives a sly look at the Polanski-Tate house before he does it. He isn't taking his shirt off for us, generous in that department though he may be. He's taking it off to possibly, maybe, attract the attention of someone who might give him a better job. Effortlessly cool though Cliff may be, the calm head whenever Rick loses his, it's clear that he could do with a change of fortune, living in a trailer beside a drive-in with only a beloved pooch named Brandy for company. We don't know much about him, but there are rumours. He might have been a war hero. He might have killed his wife and gotten away with it. Either way, Rick Dalton is the best option he's got. Just, just look, just, just, just put him in the wardrobe, all right? What's it going to hurt? Then if you need him, you got him, all right? And then they got to have a conversation with that 
wardrobe assistant, and man, she's a bitch. I just don't. Right, please, look, I, look Randy, I, I'm asking you to help me out, man. If the, if the answer is no, the, the answer is no. Not, not no with excuses. Hey, man. This ain't a Andy McLaughlin picture, you know. And I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys that smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey and, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that, that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. To, to throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just he's happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. Anyway, driving around a beautifully recreated vintage Los Angeles, running errands for his boss and best friend, Cliff picks up a young hitchhiker named Pussycat, played by Andy McDowell's daughter Margaret Qualley. And you'd have to say that that apple hasn't fallen very far from the tree, but I digress. Pussycat takes Cliff to Sparn Ranch, where he and Rick had shot Bounty Law all those years ago. It's now full of strange young people, who we later discover are the Manson family. Now, if you don't know much about that whole Manson tragic period, it's not essential to your enjoyment of the picture. But if you don't, you will want to do some reading up about it afterwards, and then you're going to want to see the film all over again. Are you some old cowboy guy that seems to make movies there? Whoa. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm surprised how accurate that description of me really is. Some old cowboy guy that used to shoot movies at Spawn Ranch. So you used to... Make westerns at the ranch back in the old timey days. Well, if by the old timey days you mean television eight years ago, yeah. Are you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. Stuntman. That's way better. Why is that way better? Actors are phony. Oh. They just say lines that other people write and pretend to murder people on their stupid TV shows. Meanwhile, real people are being murdered every day in Vietnam. While Cliff is encountering the dirty hippies in the canyon, Rick is trying hard to hold it together as the villain on a Western TV pilot called Lancer. The director of Lancer is the real director Sam Wanamaker, although he's played in the film by Nicholas Hammond, who in a former life was one of the Von Trapp children in The Sound of Music, one of many delicious details that Tarantino makes possible for us to enjoy. In later life, Sam Wanamaker went on to build the replica of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in London. So when he describes DiCaprio as Dalton, as the Lancer villain, as evil Hamlet, that's high praise indeed. Rick Dalton. <laughs> Sam Wanamaker. Hey, Sam. Sorry about the wet hand. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm used to it with you. I just want you to know I'm the one who cast you, and I could not be more delighted that you're doing this. Oh, well, well, thank you, Sam. I, I appreciate it. That's a good part. Yeah, it is. Have you met Jim Stacy, the series lead? Uh, not yet. No, no. Well, you guys are going to be dynamite together. Mm, mm. Well, it's... Sounds exciting. Yeah, lightning in a bottle. <laughs> now, Rick, about your hair. Oh, what about my hair? I want to go with a different hairstyle. Huh. What? Something more hippie-ish. You, 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 
You want him to look like a hippie? <laughs> well, think less hippie, more <coughs> Hell's Angel. Say, uh, Get me say, you Sam, say, Sam, uh, <coughs> if you got me covered up in all this, uh, <coughs> this junk, uh, how's the audience gonna know it's me? <laughs> I hope they don't. Mm. I love that line about DiCaprio's hair there because I've always found it to be an improbably quaffed distraction in every film I've seen him in. Even more so than your average Tarantino movie, there's so much to talk about here. It's genuinely funny at times, and Pitt especially gets to show off his goofiness as well as his tough guy persona. Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate is delightful. There are detours that seem to be there just to indulge Tarantino's fetish for the period, but they're also there to reinforce his theme, that this was a world that was coming to an end, and it's a world that he was very fond of. Every transition has winners and losers, and I think there's probably a counter case to be made for the retirement of dinosaurs like Rick Dalton and stale television shows like Bounty, Law and Lancer. I think the thing that I want to talk about most before I end with a recommendation that you see it and that you see it on a big screen with great sound is that this is, I think, the third Tarantino film out of the last four to consciously rewrite history so that we get a happy ending. In Inglorious Bastards, a Parisian cinema owner incinerates the entire German high command, thereby changing the direction of World War II, actually ending it probably. In Django Unchained, a freed slave destroys the plantation where his wife had been held captive. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood plays similar games with history, recreating as much of the world as accurately as possible, but also tweaking real life to make it, you know, better. I can understand why that frustrates literalists, but, to be honest, I don't know why more directors don't do it. It's so satisfying to watch. One, please. 75 cents. What if I'm in the movie? What do you mean? I mean, I'm in the movie. I'm Sharon Tate. You're in this? Mm-hmm. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. That's me. <laughs> but that's the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Well, that's me, the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Really? Really. Hey, Reuben, come out here. This is the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Patty Duke? No, the other one. The girl from Peyton Place? No, the other one. The one who ends up doing dirty movies. Oh. She's in this movie. Oh. Sharon Tate. Well, welcome to the Bruin, Miss Tate. Thank you for coming to our theater. Would you like to come in and see the show? Could I? By all means. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is rated an entirely justified R16 for graphic violence, drug use, offensive language and sexual material. And it's playing all over New Zealand now. Today was a good day. Well, I finally got a call from the, um, the cruise line. Gloria spent a lot of time talking to her hand. And they needed a singer for their stagecoach lounge. I know. Um, there's nothing in that cup. Oh, did you make me a cup? Thank you. Well, it's perfect for me, right? Delicious. That delicious? Wait, there was something in that cup? I thought I'd already seen A Dog's Journey when I saw this one show up in the listings for this week, but not for the first time and not for the last I was wrong. 
Earlier this year, I saw a film called A Dog's Way Home about a dog named Bella whose thoughts are voiced by actress Bryce Dallas Howard. Bella is separated from her rightful owners and makes a long and perilous trek across Colorado to return to them. In A Dog's Journey, the journey part is slightly more metaphorical, but it's still about a dog whose thoughts are voiced by an actor, in this case Josh Gad, trying to return to its rightful owner. The twist here is that this dog is not always the same dog. In a previous film called A Dog's Purpose, he was called Bailey and was reincarnated several times before finally rejoining his now adult owner, Ethan, played by Dennis Quaid. As the new film starts, neither Ethan or Bailey are getting any younger. Still think you got one in your boss dog. Okay. You ready? Born ready. One. Two. Three. To go, Boston. Oh, that isn't getting any easier. Oh, that isn't getting any easier. Ethan and his wife Hannah, played now by Marg Helgenberger after the sad passing of Peggy Lipton earlier this year, are grandparents to little Clarity Jane, living with them after the death of her father in a car accident before she was born. Clarity Jane's mother, Gloria, is somewhere between being out of her depth because of grief or out of her depth because she is a dreadful, selfish person with a personality disorder and a drinking problem. The film leans towards personality disorder because she doesn't like dogs, and that just isn't the American way, is it? <sighs> After all the excitement of the day, I had to cool off in the big water bowl. <laughs> hey, I know what that is. You having fun yet? <laughs> Grandpa, oh, I'd leave her with you for a couple hours, and you have Clarity bathing with a filthy dog. Finally, Gloria wants to play. <laughs> They're just playing. All right, get get out, get out, dog. Come on. We're just having fun. You know what? Don't worry, honey. Mommy's here. Come on, it's okay. No, oh, I get what you want me to do. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> this is why I don't like dogs. Maybe you wanted to stick your nose in my butt? Upset by all the criticism she thinks she's been getting from Ethan and Hannah, Gloria, played by Betty Gilpin on one note of ugly entitlement all the way through until the inevitable reconciliation at the end, packs up the toddler and drives to the city. I wanted to chase the car, but I just didn't have the energy. Bailey, Bailey, Bailey. You've done so much for me. When you come back in the time, take care of CJ. She needs you like I needed you. Bailey shuffles off his mortal coil with the instructions from Ethan ringing in his ears. Sure enough, he is reincarnated as a beagle named Molly, who CJ, who is now a precocious 11-year-old played by Abby Ryder Forston, immediately falls in love with. Inseparable through CJ's childhood and that continuing difficult relationship with Gloria, Molly discovers a talent for sniffing cancer, but not enough ability to keep CJ out of trouble. Hi, Gloria. It's good to see you. Ethan and Hannah, finally! Well, hello. Who is this? Hello. Ethan, it's me, Bailey. I'm a girl now. It's a surprise, Gloria. Look, Ethan, look. We wanted to see you. We want to see CJ. Well, we don't want to see you, which is why... Ethan, it's me, Bailey. Can't you tell it's me? Is that you, Buster? 
It's me! It's me! It's me! Like the first film, there are several reincarnations and missed connections before CJ, now played by Catherine Prescott, and Molly, now an ugly little terrier named Max, are reunited in New York City as she tries to start a music career. I think I've made a dog's journey sound a lot more convoluted than it actually is, but the premise does take some explaining. The first film was directed by Swedish legend Lasse Hallström, and this one has veteran TV director Gail Mancuso at the helm. Incredibly, after nearly 30 years directing some of the biggest shows on TV, this is her first theatrical feature film, a sign perhaps of how difficult it is for even the most able women directors to get work. In the end, I didn't like A Dog's Journey as much as that other one, A Dog's Way Home, and I'm more of a cat person than a dog person usually anyway, but even I eventually warmed to the commitment to uncomplicated and unconditional love on display. And if you don't enjoy it, the only remaining question is what particular kind of stone is your heart made out of? That girl. There's something about that girl. I smell something familiar. It smells like... CJ! I remember my purpose! CJ is my purpose! I can't let her get away! I'm coming, CJ! Uh-oh! A Dog's Journey is rated PG. There's no note on it, but I would suggest PG for It Will Probably Make Your Whole Family Cry might be a good one. It's in wide release now. A couple of years ago, Te Arepa Kahi had a huge hit with his documentary about the history and impact of the Pātea Māori club's Poye. He's back in cinemas again with another film about Kiwi music history, but this one is the history of a single band, Herb's Songs of Freedom. Some of you may have guessed that I wasn't born in New Zealand. I arrived about 33 or so years ago on what we now call a gap year. I gave the country 12 months before I could choose to go back to the UK and to university. It didn't take nearly that long to make up my mind, and one of the main reasons I stayed was that I had fallen in love with Kiwi music. In the mid to late 80s, the New Zealand music scene was still populated by real bands playing great locally written pop songs, not the manufactured glossy music video pap that had been turning me off back home. Yes, I was that kind of irritating teenage snob. Kahi's film did a fantastic job of taking me back to those times and reminding me of what got me so excited, and Herbs were a big part of that. The film also expresses what a naive young Englishman didn't appreciate back then, the political and cultural context that Herbs grew out of. Natamatoa, the Māori protest movement, the Polynesian Panthers and the response to the Dawn Raids, Bastion Point and, of course, the Springbok Tour and the Rainbow Warrior. Songs of Freedom isn't called Songs of Freedom for nothing, and the presence of the wonderfully patient Bob Marley on his visit to Auckland in 1979, answering dullard questions from Kiwi media without ever wavering on his commitment to the cause of human rights, is an important factor. 
Structured around the rehearsals for a 40th anniversary reunion concert in 2018, I'm pleased to report that there's plenty of music along with the superbly researched and presented archive material. Kudos to whoever remixed the 1979 bootleg live recording because it sounds as fresh as the 21st century versions we're treated to as well as the mixed emotions from the various talking heads who do the reminiscing. It's clearly a bittersweet experience. It's trying to get all the different personalities that we've got in this hapu, you know, and, you know, anybody that knows a hapu, even an iwi, there's all those different fragments, not only just regard to one iwi, but we're talking about a Pacific region, including Balangi, including Bakia. That was pretty messy, that one. Herb's Songs of Freedom is rated PG for violence and offensive language and it's playing in select cinemas across the country now. And that's our programme for this week. This week we could have chosen exit music from any of the films featured. Even A Dog's Journey has a nice song in it, but we used a track called Fearless last week and we should at least try and keep things a little bit fresh. This is, of course, Brother Love's Travelling Salvation Show from Neil Diamond's 1969 album of the same name, and it's one of the many great tracks featured in Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Dan Slevin, and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word, and there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen, where you can find reviews of other films that are in theatres at the moment, as well as interesting film and TV selections from local online streaming services. Simon is back next time, so please join him for more At The Movies at the same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.